0: Okay, we've got a lot to cover today, and, uh, what we're gonna be taking a look at here real quick, I'm gonna pray just a moment here, but I wanna kinda of tell you a little bit up front as to where we're heading. Um, uh, James mentioned my name is Brian, one of the pastors here, and we've been kind of in the middle of a brand new series that we started actually about six weeks ago. Today's our six weeks, our six week study in this, and it's basically a series called Theology. The reason why we have been basically going through this is because we have as a church, we've grown over the years and people are getting involved and in serving the Lord and being a part of this community here. And bottom line is we really want to make sure that we're kind of on a unified front as far as what we believe theologically, what we believe about the Bible. Uh, that does matter. I mean, what you believe about God really, truly does matter. And so this is one of the main reasons why we're basically going through this. And what we did is we started off basically looking at the Trinity. Who God is, what God is like, how God really desires relationship with us. We saw the week after that, that one of the ways in which God uh, demonstrates His greatness and His love and His desire for community outside of Himself, not that He needs community outside of Himself as a Trinitarian being, but God reveals Himself. We saw that God... Speaks God communicates who He is. God gives us His Word. In other words, God is knowable. That's a miracle. I mean, that's amazing in and of itself. I mean, if we stop everything right there, we've got enough to really be thankful to God for. Um, Beyond that, God goes on and He creates a very good creation. The planet that we have sure beats all the other options out there in the universe. It's a great place to live, right? Outside of that, God also creates humanity. Us, you and I, in His image, in His likeness. We saw last week, um, after God created all of us, one of the most tragic, treasonous, God-belittling things in the entire universe and all of God's creation happened. We sinned. We looked at that last week, and we really tried to understand a definition as to what sin is. We kind of look at it like this. Sin is basically at its kind of bottom core... Bottom level, fundamental issues is when we prefer something over the all glorious God. That's what sin is. Whatever it is, whatever we prefer over the all good, all glorious, all great, all satisfying God, that's sin. All right? And so, the reality, what we're going to be looking at today, is kind of the question that arises out of when mankind sins, you know, we try to um, take a look at that larger theme of the fall and see how that affects all of creation. We realize that basically the reason why our world is in the mess that our world is in today really has to do with the fall. We are fallen creatures living in a fallen world. That's why we have sin. That's why we have sickness. That's why we have locks on our door because everybody's afraid their house is going to get broken into. That's why freaks raise pit bulls. That's why people are doing the things we do, because we're afraid. We're afraid of each other, alright? We're afraid of the people sitting next to us, perhaps, alright? We're just fearful people realizing that we're not really safe, alright? We're not really safe in this world. And the reason for this is because sin. Sin has broken fellowship between us and God, and really between us and other people, and between us and our environment. So everything is in conflict with, with itself. Everything. Everything. I mean, thats you look at the news, you watch it for five minutes, you realize, ah, this seems to be the shoe that fits. Everything is in conflict. We can't get along with our environment because we're in conflict with it. People can't get along with people. That's why we're always having divorces and lawsuits and some dude suing another dude because we can't get along with each other. We're in conflict with God. We don't want God. So we kick God out of the school systems. We kick God out of our government. We kick God out of the nation. We kick God out of our lives as individuals. Okay? We are a people in conflict and chaos. That's the world we live in. Right? God bless it. Enjoy it. That's that's what happens. That's what sin does. Okay. What I want to ask now is the question that will lead into where we're going this morning. How does God, the infinite, all-knowing, all-loving, all-caring, all-just, all-righteous God, respond to image-bearers who lead the charge in treasonous activity, God-belittling behavior, how does God respond to people like that? How does He deal with people like that? This is probably one of the most remarkable characteristics about God. Okay. Now let me before I answer that and pray, because I want to ask this kind of question. If God, right after Adam and Eve sinned, if God chose to kill them, would God be just? Would He? Yes. God said, Look, I'm giving you a garden, I'm giving you guys each other, I'm giving you guys berries and apples and, and, and Plants to eat and I mean it's like it's like soup plantation, all right? It's all yours. It's all yours. Enjoy it. It's all free. It's glorious. It's beautiful. But don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. The day you eat of that tree, you'll die. What happens? Chapter three, they die. We saw that last week. God could have at that instant judged Adam and Eve to the point of just blotting them out of existence. God could have blotted Satan out of existence and all of the demonic realm out of existence, but that's not what God does. God responds in a way where He pursues Adam and Eve, calls their name in the garden, and He says, Adam, where are you? God goes after Adam and begins to reestablish a relationship with Adam. That's amazing. God does not need to do that. He would be perfectly just in doing it. So, here's the question, and I'll pray and we'll get to work. So, why didn't God just simply blot out all of humanity, given the fact He had all the legal rights to do it? He would not have been unjust in doing it. In fact, it would have been very right for God to just simply have done it, start all over again, and keep doing that ad infinitum, with every race that keeps entering into a breach of covenant with God. Why? I touched on a subject last week. I want to begin to build out today. There is a glory when a conqueror or one who is offended takes a sword and destroys the one who's offended him. That's glorious. You know, when you see the movie at the end, and... The emperor in Star Wars is destroyed. We're like, yes! He's finally gone. Right? Or whatever movie. You think there is a glory when that happens. But here's what happens in the story of redemption. There is a greater glory when the one who's offended actually seeks to enter into his relationship relationship to them, to reestablish relationship that has been broken through redemption. There's a greater glory when that person who's been offended actually seeks to, rather than destroy and squash, but to reestablish relationship. That's the story of the Bible. That's what God does. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, God is in this drama, this narrative this redemptive drama where God is seeking to come back and reestablish relationship with covenant breakers, with people that have regularly been treasonous in their actions, have regularly been belittling in their activity towards God, have regularly been preferring other things over the greatness and the goodness of God. And that's what God does. Time and time again, He enters into His creation seeking to reestablish and reconnect in relationship. That's that's an amazing God that we have. That's what we're going to be taking a look at here today, is this broader concept called covenant. I have to be honest with you. I have never taught about this ever, ever. I can never recall. I've studied it a lot. I, I love reading about the Puritans. The Puritans were all about covenant. In fact, some of them in Scotland were actually called covenanters didn't really quite have the exact thing to do with the covenants in the Bible, but they were covenants, meaning that they recognized something about the way that God works in the realm of what we're going to be taking a look at today, is this broader mega theme called covenant. I'm going to pray. We've got a lot to do this morning, and we'll get to work. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you that you are a great God that has, rather than justly destroying us, God, You've chosen to reestablish relationship with us. So, God, I pray this morning that you just open our eyes to see that. That really you are a God that is so great, so merciful, so kind, and so good. That over and over and over again, you've just shown your ways as being a God who's not only just, but also very gracious and loving. So we commit this morning in your hands. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. First question that I want to ask, quite simply, is this: What is a covenant? What is a covenant? Okay. Um, here's the definition. Give you a, hopefully a good working definition. It's an agreement that is either negotiated or imposed, uh, binding the parties to each other into a defined relationship usually with specific promises, benefits, and stipulations. That's basically what a covenant is. It's, it's, it's a relationship. Now, not all the covenants in the Bible are basically established by God. There's also relationships or, or covenants in the Bible that are taking place because what happens is you see a king might come into a particular area and he's overtaking a particular group of people and he's establishing a relationship with them. That's also a covenant. But one of the things we're going to be focused on mainly today is how God negotiates these relationships with fallen people into covenant with himself. That's the main thing that we're going to be taking a look at here. So there's several examples of the way this sort of plays out in the Bible. We'll see examples of marriage. Marriage is actually a covenant. We'll see land deals. There'll be people that will be kind of making and negotiating deals with other people, say, for a well so they enter into a covenant with them and they basically say things like this if you you know if you take this particular area we'll take this particular area and if you know if, if if you allow my servants to come to the well then I'll let your servants come to the well and I won't kill you and you won't kill us and we'll kind of have like this little land deal that's kind of another form of a covenant and um sometimes as I mentioned here is that some of these are negotiated and some of them are imposed now there were several different types of um, covenants in the Old Testament, as well as uh, Bible times. Um, I don't have time to go into all of them, but here's a couple of examples of them. Sometimes a king might overtake a particular group of people, and he'll say, okay, here's the covenant, all right? I'm king, you're my vassal, do what I say, pay your taxes, and uh, we'll have peace. If not, I'll kill you, all right? Sound like a good deal? It's a covenant, all right? It's kind of a form of a covenant. Um, So, some of them are imposed, such as that, and some of them are negotiated, meaning the two sides sort of work out their agreement with each other, but it's more than an agreement, it's actually a covenant. There's a difference between an agreement and a covenant. Covenants tend to be a little bit more binding in the sense where there's more of a relationship, relational aspect that goes into these. Okay, the next thing we're going to kind of ask as we look at this, as we take a look at the next question, is this. What are the covenants of the Bible? Okay, there's six of them that we're going to be taking a look at. Five of them in the Old Testament. The sixth one is in the New Testament. And basically what we're going to try to do is just go through them one by one, take a look at the way that God has interacted with fallen humanity throughout creation, throughout history, ultimately climaxing to Jesus. So, in a sense, we're going to be taking a look at the entire Bible here today. Maybe there will be a few verses that we won't get to, but for the most part, we're taking a look at the whole Bible here. A real overview of everything that's happening, everything that's transpiring, basically climaxing in these moments throughout history where God establishes these relationships with fallen mankind via what we're going to call covenant. Okay, so the first one we're going to take a look at this is Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Now, there's some scholars and theologians that kind of argue as to whether or not Adam, uh, was actually in direct covenant relationship with God. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, if you're taking notes, you can write that down, says this. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They, uh, there they dealt faithfully with men. Or they dealt faithful, uh, um, faithlessly with me. So in other words, what God's saying is that Adam was in a covenant with me. So however, whether, whether or not you want to look at it, was, was Adam actually in a covenant with God or not? He was in a relationship with God that God initiated. Okay, That's what a covenant is. God initiated this relationship with Adam. And I'll get to that in just a second here, so don't, don't be trying to figure that out. I'll tell you what, what that is in just a moment here. Every covenant that you see, basically, in the Bible is going to have some variables that are, that are pretty regular throughout all of them. A couple of them all covenants will have a mediator. This is a person or a point of contact uh, or a head person that God initiates this relationship with. Then everything that follows by way of covenant goes through that particular person. So we'll take a look at that. Another one is these stipulations. Um, Every covenant has certain stipulations. These are examples like, or conditions, where God comes on the scene and says, listen, if you do this, then I'll do this. Okay? So those are conditions or stipulations. They also have blessings, all the covenants. They will come equipped with blessings. So therefore, God would say something like this: If you do this, then I will do this, I'll, I'll bless you, I'll take care of you, I'll do this for you. And they also come with consequences or curses. You know, if, if you don't do this, this is what will happen. Okay? Um, most of them also have signs. These are sort of outward signs or examples that basically would demonstrate the fact that there is a covenant relationship happening or going on, and each of the covenants also pertain to a people, all right? So it might be through a particular mediator, but then from that mediator, it goes on to other further generations, okay? So every one of the covenants that are in the Bible basically have all of these Things that are, for the most part, in common with each other. So the first covenant we're going to be taking a look at uh, primarily is Adam and Eve. Okay, the story goes something like this. So here's what I'm going to do. Because uh, sometimes you guys are blessed because I like you and I put scriptures on the screen. Sometimes I equally like you and I want to make sure you all have your own Bibles. And uh, So get your Bibles and let's open up to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, as much as I want to bless you sometimes, you can read it on the screen. I also want to bless you to make sure that you know how to use your Bible. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. we pick up the story right here. It says this. And then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created male and female. Verse 28, and then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all of the fish of the sea, over all of the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth, and God said, Behold, I will give you every green plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree that, uh, with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. This is one of those verses that God basically just says, I'm going to bless you with everything. Verse 30, And every beast of the field of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and of everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath in it, I have given to you every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and it was the sixth day. And then God's basically going to institute or initiate the Sabbath day rest. So He's going to say, six days I work, seventh day I rest. So therefore, Adam, Eve, you do the same thing. Six days you work, seventh day you guys also rest. And in this relationship that I'm forging with you, I will bless you with everything. All right? You'll have babies. You'll have a beautiful spouse. You'll have a beautiful earth to live on. You'll till the ground. You'll work hard. It'll be a blessing. Work will actually be a joy. How many of you work and it's not a blessing, not a joy? All right? The reason why that is is because of the fall, the curse. What happens is man continues to work throughout the fall. And what happens is through the fall, work is no longer a blessing. It's a curse. God's going to say by the sweat of your brow, it's going to be hard. Work's going to be tough. You're going to come home. You're going to want to take a nap. Maybe a couple naps. All right? And it's going to be tough. So what God says initially is that this is going to be a big blessing. Everything's going to be good. As you follow me, as you love me, the one thing that God goes on to say in the very next verse that we're going to be taking a look at, chapter 2, verse 15, pick it up right there, it says this. And the Lord God took man and He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then the Lord said... Or he commanded them, saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And in the day they eat of it, you shall surely die. So God basically sets the terms of this condition. He says, everything is for you. It's good. It's a blessing. You will have a rich, amazing, satisfying life. One thing I ask you not to do is do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. The day that you eat of it, you will die. Okay? So in this particular relationship, the mediator here is Adam. Adam is the one through whom God is making this promise or this pledge or this covenant. And then the stipulations are these. Live. Work hard. And don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The blessings. God says, you've got a garden. I'm going to give you a bride. You've got the whole earth. You're going to have lots of kids. Life is going to be like a paradise. Because it is. Blessings. God says, what I just said right there. I'm not going to repeat myself. I don't know why I read that again. Consequences. What are the consequences? The day you eat of the tree, you will die. Okay? Consequences. Death if you disobey. What's the sign? I think the sign that's here is you work six days. Seventh day you rest. So some scholars have viewed this as a covenant of works. Not that he's saved by works, but that this is a covenant where God says, work hard, till the earth, conquer everything. This is a relationship, and as you work hard for six days, the seventh day you're going to rest, I'm going to bless you. To whom are the people that will be recipients of this blessing? Adam and all of his offspring. Okay? Adam and all of his offspring. Now, we know what happens immediately in chapter 3, because we looked at this last week. Adam sins. Uh, death and destruction enter into the world system. The very first thing that God does in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is God pronounces a promise. And God says, there will come a day that your wife Eve, she will give birth to a child. Alright? Her seed is basically the uh, prophecy that God makes. And out of her seed, her son will crush the head of, of the dragon that deceived you in the garden. And so what happens is God immediately gives a promise to them, even after they break the covenant, to restore fellowship with them. Again, we have an amazing God that is out for the purpose of trying to bridge and restore fellowship with people who have broken covenant with them. Now the, sex covenant, the second covenant we're going to be taking a look at is what's typically called the Noah, or the covenant with Noah. And so what happens if you guys want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter nine? We're going to read that story right now. Genesis chapter nine, beginning at about verse eight, says this. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump earlier before that. Genesis chapter six. Why don't you turn there real quick? Genesis chapter six. Beginning at verse five. It says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse six. And it says, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So here's the question. God created Adam and Eve. Uh, they break covenant with God. God makes his promise that one day I will redeem and restore all things back to the way things should have been. So let me ask you, was man's response to God one of, thank you, God, you're amazing, we'll worship you, we'll give you everything in our lives because we love you, because you're a really good God, and we're really bad people. No, because by the time you get to Noah, God says, everybody on the face of the planet's evil. Everybody is just going this way of, well, the way our world is today. Everybody's just doing their own thing. Everybody's looking out for themselves. Everybody cares about themselves predominantly. That's part of the problem of the culture and world in which we live in today. So God says in verse 7, Then the Lord said, I will blot out man Whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I made them. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Make sure you understand this clearly. Noah was not called by God to go onto the ark because Noah was a good guy. Noah was righteous. Noah Noah was a man that was worshiping God. Noah really was just a man that was part of the rest of creation. But God sees Noah and says, I'm going to show favor to him. I'm going to save him. I'm going to save him. What I think is being established here is what Paul is later going to pick up on the book of Romans, that God chooses people. Now, you might say, well, that's not fair. Let me ask you, what is fair? What is fair? Is it fair for God to destroy the whole earth? Is it? Is it unfair? It's really important to know the answer to this question. Is it fair for God to destroy evildoers or unfair for God to destroy evildoers? It's fair. So here's the question. Should God destroy every human individual on the planet like he does in Noah's day? Is that fair or unfair? It's fair, right? Now, if God chooses to save one of those persons or people out of the rest of the world... Is that being unfair or is that showing grace? It's actually showing both, isn't it? It's showing fairness, meaning that God is actually doing what He has every right to do, which is destroy. But He's also demonstrating the kindness and the grace. He didn't didn't need to. He wasn't obligated to save Noah. But I think what He's doing is He's setting forth a pattern saying that God will do what He desires to do Because if we simply look at it on legal terms and say, what do we deserve? What we deserve is complete abandonment from God. Make sure you understand that. If we don't understand that, then we start waving this flag like, well, God's unfair. You might think that now, but you will not think that on the last day, standing before the Almighty God. God is always fair. So he chooses Noah for whatever reason we're not given. Just says that God found favor with Noah, or Noah found favor with God. Verse nine says, "And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless." So it goes on after this to say this, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, but Noah had three sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse verse one of chapter nine goes on and says this. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, "Be fruitful." multiply, fill the earth for the fear of the dead. So it's, what happens now is after the flood, all the waters subside. God judges the entire earth. Noah and his family are the only family that's basically left alive. And what happens, God now gives them a brand new covenant. God reestablishes a really this relationship with Noah and the new creation that's going to be happening through Noah and his offspring and it says this, God bless Noah and his sons, and he said, to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, for the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon the beast, every beast of the field, and upon every bird of heavens, and upon everything that creeps from the ground, the fish of the sea, and into your hand, they are delivered. Every, morning, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, so I'm giving you everything. This is God's way of saying, now try tip school. All right, before the flood, the vegetarian. After the flood, God says, like, it's all fair game, all right? Go out and get a good steak. They're really good. And what happens, God goes on and said in verse 4, he says, but you shall not eat of the flesh that has its life in it. That is, its blood. And you, uh, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And every beast I will require from, um, from man, for his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful, multiply, team the earth, or fill the earth, and multiply it. So here's the point that I think is important to understand. What God basically says to Noah is this. I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you everything. And in many ways, builds upon the original covenant God made with Adam. Right? It's very similar. Most of these covenants... Sort of dovetail with the covenant previous to it. They're not necessarily removing the old terms or destroying the old terms. They're building upon the old terms. It's very important to understand that. Some scholars have chosen to recall this sort of God's progressive revelation, meaning at the very beginning, Adam and Eve had this relationship with God, but it wasn't complete, meaning it wasn't, God didn't reveal all of who He was. God revealed increments of who he was throughout each one of these covenants. So that's kind of how it's oftentimes viewed. Verse 8 of chapter 9 says this, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, and as many that came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth, Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you. He uses the word covenant again. He says that never again shall flesh be cut off from the waters with a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then God said, this is the sign. So here's the sign. As I mentioned earlier, every covenant has a sign. This is a sign of the covenant between me and you, every living creature that is with you for the future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and in the earth, when I bring clouds of the earth and the bow is in, or seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature in all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And then, and then uh, God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. A reference to the rainbow. So here's what God's basically saying to Noah. is That Noah, in this covenant that I'm making with you, all I'm asking you to do is continue what uh, your father um, Adam did. Be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply it. The one condition, okay? So what's, who's the mediator? Noah. Noah is the mediator. What are the stipulations? Well, God says basically to Noah, respect life. I'm going to give you meat now to eat. Go ahead. You can eat animals. That's fine. But God says don't eat meat that has blood in it. Why? Because blood represents very important. You catch this. Because this is picked up. This is a mega theme throughout the entire Bible. Don't miss the importance and significance of blood. God says because in the blood... Is life. Here's what God's saying. Respect the blood. Respect life. Okay? That's what God's saying. God says so much respect blood that if you eat an animal that has blood in it, you'll be cut off from His covenant. If you disrespect blood, which equals life, it's over between us you're violating the covenant. Don't do that. Respect life. Respect it. What are the consequences? If you disrespect life, you'll pay for it with your life. Kind of the idea. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life. Kind of the idea there. What's the sign? The sign that God makes, um, the exterior sign is a rainbow. God says, every time you see the rainbow come up, that's going to be an external sign of the fact but I will never bring a universal flood like I did in Noah's day again. Okay, that's God's way of basically uh, making a distinction about that. But there's also an internal sign, is that Noah, even though he was, it, it terms him as being kind of a righteous guy, doesn't necessarily mean that he was a perfect guy, or that he was, you know, a holy guy, or that he had something special in which God says, you know, what, I like this guy. He really loves me. He's a real worshiper. So I'm going to call him. But it means the fact that Noah believed God. He trusted God. So what we're beginning to see here in the Bible, okay, as a, as a larger theme, is that God is showing, I don't want to say favoritism or partiality, but God shows respect and kindness and favor towards those who believe in Him. Very important theme. Paul picks up on this throughout the entire New Testament. This seems to be the main way by which God engages with fallen mankind. Because fallen mankind reaches for God by faith. They trust in God. They believe in God. They trust in the things that he's going to do. So, how do we know that Noah believed God? You guys, Noah built a ship in the middle of the desert. Alright? That takes a lot of faith. People thought he was nuts. Alright? It would be like me going to Bakersfield and saying, I'm building a massive four-football-length field uh, or, or ship and one of these days I'm gonna put every animal on the entire face of the planet into the ship and it's gonna rain people would think I was nuts for right reasons all right that's what Noah did he trusted God even though it seemed kind of crazy okay who were the people well Noah and his offspring okay the next one that we're going to take a look at is what's called the Abrahamic what happens in the Abrahamic Covenant is it begins at around Genesis chapter 12. So turn there, Genesis chapter 12. Beginning at about verse 1, it says this, Now the Lord God said to Abraham, Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house. And he says, And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will bless your name, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor those who curse you. And I... And and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes his promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, through you or in you, all the nations of the planet are going to be blessed. So as we go on from that, I want you to jump forward real quick to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. Okay, at this point right now, Noah's a pretty old guy. I mean, when God originally comes to Noah, he's kind of an older guy. His wife's older. But God basically says, follow me. I'm going to give you a land. Now, originally, Abraham lived in a region called Ur, Ur of the Chaldees, which is probably, most scholars believe, modern day Iraq. So here's the question Was Abraham a Jew? No. No. He was not. This is crazy. This blows people's minds. Like, what? I thought the dude was a Jew. He became a Jew. He was not a Jew. He was a pagan worshipping idolater when God came to him. He lived in. Iraq, amongst a bunch of paganistic, idolatrous type people. For whatever reason, God chose this man living in Iraq and says, you know, I'm going to call you. And I'm going to call you. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Will you follow me? Come to a place I'm going to show you. And he does. He believes God. That, that's exactly what the story of Abraham is. He believes God and this is a counter to him for righteousness. In other words, God gives it to his account. Verse 17, or verse 1 of chapter 17 says, when Abraham, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said, I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and then God said, Behold, my covenant is with you. God reiterates it he says, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, for your name shall be called Abraham. God changes his name, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Okay, now let me ask you, how many kids does Abraham have at this point that have kids? Not very many, all right? (laughs) None, other than Isaac, which God doesn't even recognize, Okay. It goes on and God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant, verse 7, between me and all of your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Check this out. How long is this covenant? It's everlasting. It's everlasting. God says, this isn't going to be broken. And he goes on and says, to be God, to you to your offspring after you, and I will give you and your offspring and all the land uh, of your sojournings in the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 9, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. And he says, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant which shall you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he says, and he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, uh, whether born in your house or bought uh, with your money for any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who brought who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised so shall my covenant be in your flesh. Everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from this covenant people. Because they've broken my covenant. All right. This is good so far? you guys enjoying this? Following? All right. Have you a snack break? You guys doing okay? All right. The first question, again, is this. Who's the mediator? It's Abraham. Abraham's the mediator. Okay? What are the stipulations? Well, God says, trust me. Follow me. And God says, uh, these are going to be the blessings. He says, a son, I'm going to give you a son. You're going to have land. You're going to be the father of many nations. I don't think I have it up there, but the, some of the curses are basically, God's, you know, God's going to basically go on to reiterate, look, obey me and you'll be blessed. Disobey me and not keep my covenant. You'll be cut off. That means the covenant of circumcision, which is really the outward sign. So what is the sign of this whole covenant relationship that God makes with Abraham and his descendants? Circumcision. Okay? And who are the people? Well, all of Abraham's offspring. Now, is this just Jews? No. Not at all. Because this is talking about people that don't even belong to Abraham's tribe. This could be slaves that were bought. This is people that just sort of stop them by and kind of camp out for a little bit. They're like, hey, you guys are kind of cool. Can I hang out with you guys? Yeah, you can hang out with us, but you've got to become part of our group. How to become part of your group? Drop your pants and I'll show you. It's called circumcision. You know, and at that point, all right, sorry. At that point you got a choice. Do I keep going forward, becoming part of this covenant group, or do I say, ah, look, I'm 35 years old, this ain't gonna work out. See ya. You cut off. All right, so I mean that's the way it was, okay? I'm just teaching the Bible. Give me some slack. All right, so the point that I'm trying to make is this: this is part of this covenant relationship that God makes with Abraham and his descendants. It's through this covenant recognized by circumcision. All right, there's so much more I can say about this, uh, but I'm not. Last thing I want to read is Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter twenty two. It's a great story beginning at about verse fifteen. Genesis twenty two, verse fifteen. He says this and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham. Okay, now at this time, Abraham's really old. Alright? He's got a son now. He's got one son, his name's Isaac. And many scholars believe now, I think in this picture, I don't know, you can't really see it that well because the conscience isn't that great. But uh it looks like a lot of scholars, a lot of people throughout the ages have thought that, you know, Isaac was kind of like this twelve year old kid. Most scholars, I think, if you look at the story properly, I think he was probably a very healthy kid, maybe in his 30s. He was strong enough to carry the wood for the sacrifice by himself up to the altar, which we'll read about. So God calls Abraham, and he says in verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time from heaven. And he said, by by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And you've not withheld your son, your only son. So what happens is God, at the beginning of the story, calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, take your son and take him up to a place I'm going to show you at a mountain called Moriah, and I want you to kill him. But think about this. All of the promises that God makes through this covenant relationship are going to come, as God already said, through Isaac. Do you see the problem here? Genesis 22, God says, kill Isaac. That's a little bit difficult to do. For one, this is child sacrifice. God says, "Don't kill people. Don't kill babies. You know, don't kill your sons. Don't kill anybody. Don't slay blood. Don't don't lay blood on the ground. Don't mistreat blood. Respect it." Here, God is kind of a paradox. Why is God not only asking Abraham to offer a son, but also at the same time the promise that everything that God's going to make in terms of the covenant is going to come through? Isaac, his son. We're told later, this is really just part of a test. God is testing his love. And he basically says, I'll do it, Lord. Hebrews actually tells us that Abraham did this because he knew and he believed the covenant relationship that God made with him was so strong and so faithful that even if Abraham died, or even if Isaac died, God would raise him from the dead. That's what Abraham believed. He actually believed, if i got to kill my boy, God will raise him up from the dead. Because God said, this whole covenant thing is going to come through my son, Isaac. Therefore, if anything happens to Isaac, God will raise Isaac from the dead, if you ask him. Abraham is called the father of faith. Because he believed God. He trusted God. He was like, God, I know you're going to do what you're going to do. You said, I'm going to be a father of many nations. If I kill my son, that doesn't quite make a lot of sense. So therefore... You must perform a miracle to raise my son from the dead or something. Because that's, that's who you are. You don't break covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. Okay? The next covenant. next covenant we're going to take a look at, we're going to make our way through this, is the covenant with Moses. Okay? We're going to try to move through these, some of these pretty quickly because I don't, to, uh, I don't want to skip out in the last section here. The next one is in terms of Moses. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 1 says this. Exodus chapter 6. The so next book of the Bible. We look at basically the majority of Genesis Uh, Next is Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. And God says, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. So God's going to speak to Moses now. He's going to communicate to Moses uh, this new type of a covenant. Verse 2 says, God spoke to Moses and he said, to I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. Why does God mention this? Because basically what God is saying is that, listen, I am the God of covenant. The God that made relationship with Abraham and to his offspring. Happened to be Isaac. And Jacob, so God's coming to him and introducing himself. He's saying, look, you've heard about me, and, and this is me. I'm going to make a new covenant with you, a relationship with you. He says, I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And he says, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel Now, what had happened were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants had been in Israel for several hundred years. They had become slaves. And because God never forsakes his covenant, he pulls Moses. Was Moses a good guy? Not really. wasn't that great. I mean, he was raised in Pharaoh's court. So, for whatever reason, God saw fit to call Moses. So, God pulls Moses aside and says, Moses, I'm going to form a special relationship with you because I'm going to use you to deliver my people which are the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for whom I made this covenant with, to take them out of Egypt and bring them into the Promised Land. So what happens in the story, what transpires, is basically as God communicates all this to, to Moses, the very next thing happens, He confronts Pharaoh. They come to the point of the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They celebrate what's called the Passover, which was the last meal that they had just before coming out of Egypt um, to the Red Sea. After they came to the Red Sea, 40 days or 50 days later, God ends up bringing them to the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. God gives Moses the 10 commandments, and basically at that particular juncture God Moses comes down and he says, "Listen, I'm delivering to you the tablets of stone which God is making a covenant with you." And basically what God says to the people of Israel is, "You will be my holy nation. You'll be my special people. I will be your husband." I will be your husband. I will covenant myself to you. I will see you through the wilderness journeys. I will take you to the promised land. I will be to you like a very faithful husband. God says, just all I'm asking you to do is love me with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. And then God delivers what's called the law, or the Ten Commandments, which is called the Decalogue, and what, then God goes on and gives all these other codes. Some of them are moral. Some of them have to do with just sort of dietary laws. But God says, listen, I'm giving you these things so that we can be in relationship, so that you can be healthy, so that we can have prolonged life, so that we can continue on into the promised land. Were they faithful? Did they obey? No. For 40 years they wandered around, spinning their wheels, kicking up dirt, fussing, disobeying God, and yet God ultimately is faithful and He brings them into the land of the promise after the whole generation is wiped out. So who's the mediator of this? Moses. What are the stipulations? God says, obey my law. Love me. What are the blessings? God says, I'll, I'll free you from exile. And you'll have the life of God through the word that I'm giving you. What are the consequences? Well, later on, Moses is going to basically take them to these two mountains in really powerful moment where God says, if you obey me, I'll give you blessings. I'll give you life. I'll give you the land of Canaan. If you disobey me, All of these curses will come upon you. All of the curses of the law. What's the sign of the covenant of Moses? Passover. Jews still celebrate this today. Very important to understand. When Jews celebrate Passover, what they're actually doing is they're remembering the covenant that God made. Several thousand years ago. Who are the people? What are the people to? All of the descendants. They will be a holy nation. Okay, next. And last. Old Testament covenant, this is with David. This is with David. Okay, now, really what we're told, we're not really told explicitly that this is a covenant of David in 2 Samuel, which is where we're going to be heading. Uh, Actually, Psalm 89, verse 3 says this. um, It says it uses the word covenant to describe this relationship that God has with David. But here's what happens. Now, was David a great guy? Was he powerful? Was he a mighty man of valor, mighty man of war? No, he was a little red-headed kid that nobody liked. Well, it was. I mean, he was just like, he was like the kid brother that nobody wanted hanging around. And they always dodged him. I mean, you can just imagine. He was a kid that was picked on. He wanted so bad to hang out with his older brothers that were like these mighty men of war. And he's like, guys, can I go hang out with you? Like, no, Dave, why don't you just stay home and like bake bread? right? Just bake bread with mom. All right? You know, so that was David. All right? But God, for whatever reason, again, God showing the fact that he does not, show favoritism, just chose David. Just to blow our minds and be like, you mean God actually loves red-headed stepchildren? Yes! God actually can demonstrate grace and kindness to these people. And He does. And He demonstrates that constantly with people like you and I. God is a God that just will show favor on whoever He wills. The rest, we all get what we have deserved coming to us. All of us. But God will choose whom he chooses. And in this case he chooses David, and here's what happens in this particular story of David in Second Samuel chapter seven. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And you have been and I have been with you wherever you were wherever you went, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make your name and I will make your name great. Like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they will dwell in their own place, and be disturbed by no one. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. He says. And then he goes on, and he's basically making this point because David wants to build this house for God, which is the temple. And what happens is God says, David, you, you can't build my house for me, but here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to build you a house, and forever there will be a king sitting upon your throne, forever. David is so blown away by this. It says he goes into the other room, sits down, weeps, and is just humbled by the fact that God is so gracious. Because here's what God's saying. Saying, David, you will always have a son to rule as king. You will have a dynasty that will never die. That's huge. Every king wants a dynasty that will last forever. Alright? Every king! Here, God says to David, You're going to have a dynasty that will last forever. Now, the ultimate son that God is referring to is Jesus. This is why Jesus is referred to as the son of David and as the king that will be sitting upon the throne of David. Okay, it's very important to understand that. So, who's the mediator? David. What are the stipulations? God just says, Obey me, follow after him. What are the blessings? God says, There will be a king and a kingdom that will be forever. What are the consequences? There will be judgment. Right? When you disobey, there will be judgment. An example is with the sin with Bathsheba. Right? His firstborn son dies. Guys, don't, don't make a mistake thinking, that ah, I'm in grace, I'm never going to have problems with God. No, in fact, Hebrews tells us that there's going to be occasions, especially if you are in covenant with God. Have you ever noticed that God kind of has a way of just constantly staying on your tail? Have you noticed that? I'm not kidding, I was talking to a guy a few weeks ago, and he got in some real serious trouble with the law. And he was so bummed. He was weeping, and he was just overwhelmed with the fact that, that what had happened to him that particular weekend, he was just bummed about it. And I just looked him in the eyes and was just like, you know, bro, God did this because he loves you. And that, just, that's, that, that might be a hard thing for you to swallow at this moment, but the reason why everything transpired the way that it did is because God so loves you his judgments or his discipline is out of a fathering heart. Who are the people that this is for? What's the sign? I think the sign is there's a throne and ultimately a temple. Because God is going to go on to say that there will be a temple that will be built, but not by you, David, but by your son. So in other words, in terms of the throne and the temple, not only a king, but a priest will ultimately come out of David's name. It's a promise. And who are the people? All of those who follow God. Okay, the last covenant I want to take a look at. We're almost done here. The last covenant is this. is what's going to be called a new covenant. So turn your Bibles real quick to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And notice we begin in the Old Testament, because that's where Jesus begins, or the new, te- new covenant begins. Now one thing I want to make sure you guys understand. When we use the word covenant... We actually use the word covenant all the time, even though we might not know it, especially when we're talking about our Bibles. The word testament literally means covenant. It literally means covenant. All right? Uh, when we talk about Old Testament, we're talking about Old Covenant. New Testament, we're talking about New Covenant. So when we talk about covenant, covenants are something that is all throughout the Bible. It is, as I mentioned, this mega theme that is all throughout, from beginning to end. It's part of God's way of interaction with fallen creation. So, Jeremiah chapter 31 says this. Behold, the days are coming. So, God's speaking about something in the future. He declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's basically, a way of saying all of Israel and beyond. Verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So, what he's re- what's he referring to? He's referring to the Mosaic covenant. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant with them that's not like the Mosaic covenant. It's different. And it says... That covenant, they broke. God makes this relationship. says, here's a covenant with you guys. Israel was unfaithful. This is why Old Testament prophets actually make reference to Israel as being like a prostitute. Is it, that says, my people Israel, I'm their husband. My people have gone out behind my back, and not even for money, but for free. They've slept with every other false deity. But God says, but I'm going to keep being faithful to them. Guys, how great is our God? That's how great our God is. And God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with them. Because the reality is, they kept breaking the old covenant. So the new covenant I'm going to make with them, He says this, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, next passage, He says, I will put my law within them. And I will write it upon their hearts. God says, the old law, how is the old law given? By stone. They were to memorize it. They were to read it. They were to study it. God says, this new covenant is not going to be like that. This new covenant, I will take my word and I will put it in their heart. It will be a part of them. They'll love it. And he says, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Verse 34 says, no longer. So each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, hey, know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now go to the New Testament to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, verse 26. says this, this is Jesus with his disciples on the last day before he's going to die, He's celebrating a meal with them, as we typically call it the Last Supper. It just so happens to be that the last meal that they're eating together is the Passover. So they're already recognizing the Passover. They're already recognizing the Mosaic Covenant, which God just says in Jeremiah chapter 31. They're already memorizing. Everything is fresh in their minds. And Jesus says this, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread after blessing it was which was all traditional, then he gives it to his disciples, and then Jesus basically breaks with some four thousand or three thousand years of tradition, and he says something that no Jewish rabbi, no father of the family ever said before. Jesus takes the bread and he raises up and he says, Take this, eat this, this bread that you and your fathers and your forefathers have always eaten. This is this bread is my body. And he goes on and he says, and then he took the cup. And when they had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he says, drink, all of you. And they all drank it. And he says, this cup that you're drinking, that you've always drunk since you were little children, is the blood of the brand new covenant, poured out so that your sins will be forgiven. Jesus says, I am entering into a new covenant with you comes from my blood. Remember the blood? Value, life, and the blood. Jesus says, I will lay my life, my life down. I will pour my blood out. I will die on the cross. You want to know how far God went to make covenant relationship with you? To the death of his son. That's how far. That's how far. Here's an example in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 18 says this. He says, "For you have not come to that to that which may not be touched." He's talking to the Hebrew believers, and he says, "The blazing fire, the darkness, the gloom, the tempest." He's talking about when they were, were given the um, Ten Commandments, verse nineteen. He says, "And the sound of the trumpet, and the voice." whose words made the hearers beg for no further message to be spoken. These guys were afraid. Verse 20, he says, For they could not endure the order that was given. He says, I, If even a, a beast touched the mountain, it would be destroyed. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight of Moses, that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have not come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God in the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels of vessel gathering, he says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God and judge of all, and the spirits of all righteous and perfect. He says, And Jesus, who is the mediator of this brand new covenant, sprinkled with blood, speaks a better word. Last thing he says is this. Here's what the author is saying. That this new covenant is made with Jesus through his blood. And he finishes by these words. He says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if you do not, for if you for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, that is the Ten Commandments, much less will you escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This is God speaking. He says, at that time his voice shook the heavens and shook the earth, just as it was promised. Yet once more I will shake the earth and also the heavens. He says, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of all things that will be shaken. That is, things which are, have been made in order to that they would be destroyed. Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews basically says this, Look, if the children of Israel did not, could not escape the consequences of breaking the covenant that God made through Moses, how much more do we think we will escape? the covenant that God made with us through His Son on the cross. Here's what He's saying. Believe and trust in Jesus. That's what He's saying. So the mediator of this brand new covenant is Jesus. He is the mediator. The stipulations, believe. Jesus is going to say this over and over again. Trust in Me. Love Me. Okay. To speak to our generation, it's this. Don't just Be spiritual. It's not enough. If your mentality is like, well, I'm spiritual. i got faith. I believe. I have to ask you, what do you believe? What do you believe? Because if you just simply believe anything, in a sense, it's not refined or reduced to what God has demonstrated in His covenant kindness through Jesus. Then the stipulation is God says those who believe in the Son will never perish. Those who don't believe in the Son will perish. But guys, I love you. I want you to be in covenant relationship with God, as revealed through His Son Jesus. This is why we love Jesus so much, is because even though we have constantly, consistently betrayed and belittled God by preferring other things, God. And His kindness has pursued us. That's what covenant is. It's God's action of pursuit. To reestablish. To remake. To recreate. Broken fellowship. Guys, I hope you see how great our God is.